friend, Jerry. He's reliable. He's considerate. He's like your exact opposite. So he's Bizarro Jerry. Bizarro Jerry? Yeah, like Bizarro Superman. Superman's exact opposite. Who lives in the backwards Bizarro world? Up is down, down is up. He says hello when he leaves, goodbye when he arrives. Shouldn't he say bad bye? Isn't that the opposite of goodbye? No, it's still goodbye. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and today I think I have a special show for us all because I've managed to make contact with uh, Mr. David Mandel and you may or may not recognize that name. Uh, but I'll give you a little background, and uh, and and then you'll uh, I, I guarantee you that most of you will know who he is at that point. Uh, but David, before I do that, thank you for coming on, and uh, I appreciate you making the time for us. And it looks like you froze on me. <laughs> Are you there? Can you hear me? I'm going to hang up and call you right back because I seem to have lost you. Hello again. Hey, sorry. Uh, I do not. That that was all new to me. Sorry. Now this this is this is my fault for being cheap, because if I was a little bit more uh, generous with my cash, I would have a better platform than Skype. Which no no worries. Uh, it seems to be working, so I'll think we're okay now. Uh, yeah, it basically it rebooted. Because I hadn't used Skype in forever, and then I had to put in passwords, then I had to verify my identity, then it wouldn't let me accept phone calls until I updated my system permissions, and then I had to restart the whole thing one more time. And now this, this sounds so, typical for Skype. I, so, I, being, being the, uh, I, I think you're one of us when I talk about the nerd geek community. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Fred Hembeck? Yes, of course. Yep. Yeah, we had him on, and we had a we had a great conversation with him. But he is uh, not willing to go with Skype, and he he said, you know, you got to do uh, what you call it. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm trying to blank. Uh, not Microsoft Meetings, Teams. Uh, what's the, the Zoom or whatever? Zoom. Zoom. I couldn't, couldn't even think. Sure. So it needed to be Zoom for him. So I signed up for Zoom, and it was five dollars a month, which is not like I can't afford five dollars a month. But I did it for the month that I had him on, and then I canceled because I said, why am I going to still pay for this when I don't, when I have a free service? And this is why I should pay for it. 
it's all, all good. I think we're now in and okay, so I'll take it. Yes. Okay, so I started to all do right. the introduction. <laughs> yeah, and, please, sorry. And I'm going to Go say <laughs> that despite the fact that I've been familiar with your work for quite some time, I was not familiar with you uh, until I heard you on uh, Gilbert Gottfried's show. Oh, and funny. Okay. That's what made me seek you out. And I am not going to do an introduction that would compare to anything that Gilbert did in introductions because those were always fabulous. Uh, and, uh, you know, his show is certainly sorely missed already now that he's passed. Uh, and, and I could tell from your enthusiasm on the show how much you enjoyed talking to him. So, yeah, I, that was a true dream come true. So, yeah. I can imagine, but uh, just for the for the sake of the people listening, David yeah, has no, go for it. either been a director, a writer, a producer, oh, just or do any it. two worry. of the three on Saturday, Saturday Night yeah, Live, just, Seinfeld, just... Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Simpsons, uh, Veep, and this this has got me thinking. I got to start watching Veep because that's one of the shows I haven't watched, and I know you were heavily involved in that. But the big thing that made me reach out to you is once I did become familiar with you and your work, I found out what a big comic book fan you are, which lines up with me. Uh, and then I started following you on Instagram and I started seeing some of the original artwork that you were posting and I became extremely jealous. Uh, and then I, you know, I've started listening a little bit to your, your podcast and I hear about the props and everything. And it's, it's all fascinating to me to be totally honest with you. Uh, and it's at least as far as the props go, that's the, and even the original artwork, that stuff is probably way out of my price range. And I'll tell you a story to start things off that will, will probably just, you know, it has me pulling the hair out of my head is I remember I'm, I'm a little older than you. And I do remember I started collecting around 1973. I started collecting comic books and I started then going okay. to comic book conventions and we would go to Manhattan to a comic convention and I would have, say, $40 on me, which was, you know, a lot of money that I had saved up to go. And my attitude then, which I look back on and I kick myself is, well, what can I maximize what I can get with this $40? I could probably get, you know, a couple of hundred books instead of saying, let me get the best thing possible. And back then, they actually had somebody, and I, I, my friend insists Jack Kirby was there. Uh, I don't know for a fact. I don't have a memory clear enough of yeah. it. But they had pages of his original artwork for sale, probably in the $40 range. Could you imagine getting a hold of that stuff for $40 now? Yeah. Every now and then you pick up a piece of art, like an older piece of art that still will have like on the back, like it's usually in pencil, though sometimes in pen, you know, ballpoint, uh, you know, like a uh, little like information and a price. And it's just nothing sends you into just a just a depressive tailspin is when you like, you know, pick up a kirby or a ditko page but honestly anything even you know like frank miller george perez or whatnot and you see like 35 dollars or 120 dollars you know something now where you literally could add three zeros to it and you might say to yourself that's a bargain so yeah, yeah. exactly but look yeah you know i if we worried about what we didn't buy and collect like when we had the chance you'd sort of i don't know i don't think you could enjoy anything so i try not to I try not to think about that too much. But, yeah, yeah. There is a reality to that because otherwise, if, if I, well, every once in a while I do start thinking back, oh, I could have gotten this for, you know, I could have bought a Amazing Spider-Man number one for $100. And it, it just, it boggles my mind. But I just, you know, I have my 
oh, I don't know, about seven or 8,000 books in a closet, you know, all neatly put away and everything. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy with what I have, but I think about what I could have had. Sure, sure. <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me ask you, what, what got you into comic books first? Um, you know, it was a little bit of, you know, I definitely made the switch from, you know, like the cartoons kind of over. So, you know, the two biggies, probably the old Spider-Man cartoon, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever spider can. Um, and then the old super friends. And I don't remember any year about anything, but I just, I know I was watching those shows and then started seeing comics um i've told this story before uh i used to get my hair cut at fao schwartz in new york city and if you uh if you didn't cry you got a comic book whoever the barber there i used to go to mr rudy and he must have been cutting somebody's hair that was connected to marvel comics because they had they were stamped complimentary copy they were the, the the stamped copies but it was all the weird licensed stuff like human fly and godzilla and like like planet of the apes like all that weird kind of stuff so if you were a good kid you didn't cry when you get your hair cut you got one of those and so somewhere i kind of went from that some of those old paperbacks and like some of the old like origins and whatnot, those book, the fireside books into just randomly picking up, you know, issues on the stands, you know, like on vacations and whatnot into becoming like a full blown reader. But, uh, I guess I, you know, it's sort of one of those things where in my mind, I was very much always into it. And there's sort of, I can't really remember a time where I was like reading that I didn't know about comic books. And then obviously, going weekly to a comic book store comes later but even before that i was there was a stand on 79th street and they had certain books and there was a different stand on 72nd street and they had different books in new york and so you know my i wasn't like every day but it was like part of my life of trying to figure out how to get my next book and again i wasn't collecting i wasn't there was no plan to it i was just reading and enjoying so yeah yeah, see, for me, it was a little different because for me, and I've told this story so many times, I, I got to give the Reader's Digest version, but it's, you know, I had been familiar with comics and then I picked up an issue and I always can pinpoint it was Amazing Spider-Man number 131. I picked it up off the stands, uh, you know, Aunt May marrying Doc Ock. Yep. Uh, and it was like something clicked inside of me that minute. And I went from somebody who was familiar with comics to an avid collector that needed to felt the need to have every book ever came, that ever came out. So, uh, how old were you for that issue? How old were you? I believe that issue was 1973, so I would have been 10 years old when it came okay. out. Okay. See, I feel like I first saw them a little bit younger, and therefore the notion of collecting, while I was probably doing my own bad six-year version you know six-year-old version of it i just liked comics as opposed to collecting the collecting came later for me probably when i got closer to 10 11 years old and started finding comic stores in new york and then bumping into things like you know when i first read for me when i read x-men and i figured out you know like where i was in the run which at the time was X-Men 138, was my first current she issue. came in right after the Dark Phoenix. Yes, exactly. But that issue was the recap issue that tells you the entire history because Cyclops is leaving. Um, 
And so buying that issue, which taught me this whole history, basically sent me on this path of eventually going backwards and filling in every issue from giant size forward, although giant size took me forever because it was always the book I couldn't afford. And then occasionally popping early classic X-Men issues here and there. But again, that was where maybe the collecting started to kick in a little more for me, I guess. And I always find that the collecting aspect of it for me personally, uh, what I can afford and what I'll buy are not always the same thing. Sure, of course. Uh, and, I, and I tell the story about how, like, I'll go to the store with my wife and we'll stop in a comic store and she'll be there and she has no interest in it yeah. other than being an enabler. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll start flipping through the bins and I have a list of books that I want and there'll be a book that I want that's on my list and I pull it up and I look at it and it's a good, in good condition. But I see they're charging $8 for it when I think it should go for 3 So I put it back in the thing. And she's like, well, you could afford it for $8. Why don't you buy it? And it's like, well, no, 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 no. That's that's not how this works. <laughs> you know, I have to find it at the right price or I don't want it. Uh, so, if, you know, if it can make you if I can turn around and make you jealous of something I have uh, in turn, in comparison to your original art collection, I have a copy of Giant Size X-Men number one that I bought for 35 cents when it came out. <laughs> yeah, no, for me, that was the one where, again, you know, again, I'm talking as, you know, whatever, like, you know, an early teenager and whatnot, like, no matter what job I had, I was always like one, one generation of where X-Men was back. So when I finally had $50 in my pocket, it was 65. Do you know what I mean? It yes. was like, no matter, oh, I know exactly no matter how that much feeling. I, no matter how much I saved up, you know, and I guess if I bought nothing, I guess I could have gotten it eventually, but it would be like, ah, and I'd buy something else, and then I'd raise up 65, and it'd be 75. You know, it was always that. So <laughs> That was yeah, my that, experience, yeah. not with comic books, but as as a uh, teenager when I wanted to get a Tom Seaver rookie card. That was this, the same exact story. Every time sure. I had enough and I went by the store, I went, and it was marked up a little bit more, and I, I just could not afford it. And then eventually it just went out of the price range that I was right. willing to pay for a baseball card. But by the way, you know, baseball cards, and again, I collected, I don't necessarily collect, but I collected, and it's that same thing, you know, if I think about, oh, if I had just bought all of those cards that were readily available, yes, they were what seemed expensive at the time, but of course now it seems like nothing, but again, you could, you'd lose your mind if you think about that, so. And, hey, I to, make, yeah. to make that lose my mind even more, yeah. my dad insisted, and we've lost, I lost my dad a little while ago, but he insisted that as a kid he had Action Comics number one. Uh, and that his mother threw it out. So my, I had an uncle that definitely had. I don't think he had Action One because the ages don't work. But he definitely had the Silver Age, you know, like all the Marvel ones and stuff like that. And those went away when he went to camp at some point. And I don't know if there's anyone specifically to blame. They just were gone one day, and that was that. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's that's where you can't look back because if you find somebody yeah. to blame, every time you see them, you kind of <laughs> you'll do that lip snarl. Uh, I had a I had a boss, uh, my old boss, longtime producer at Saturday Night Live, Jim Downey, a very famous writer, uh, political comedy writer and comedy writer in general. Um, 
and he had this great story about how when he was a kid, he had all his like, you know, marbles and stuff. And he used to write his name on it, Jim Downey or James Downey at the time. And that apparently years later, like in his 20s or 30s, his phone rang one day and a crazed comic collector had found some of his early issues and like found tracked his number down you know and was like are you the james downey from where joliet or whatever and basically was calling to see if he still had comics that he wanted to sell which i always <laughs> thought was a great a great That's, story yeah that is pretty cool yeah so when when you did finally fall into the collecting phase uh was there a focus to it other you mentioned x-men no, there was not x-men x-men was a be-all end-all and definitely a gateway. And Frank Miller, Daredevil was big for me, where I ended up like coming in and working backwards to fill those runs in. My my collecting was very half-assed. Occasional random old issues in terrible condition that I just thought looked interesting. I loved reading to what extent you know reprints were around. Any kind of like large book of reprints, treasuries that reprinted stuff, reprint issues. I read it all, but I never tried to track down the books. My collecting really was buying what was new. And it wasn't really speculating, but I would buy multiple copies of, you know, issue ones and things, and I would bag and board them. And I'm not sure they're worth the bag and boards that they, you know, were on, you know, like things like, you know, oh, they killed the Flash, and now Wally West is the Flash, and there's a new Flash number one. I probably had, you know, 20 copies of Flash number one. I'm not sure where they they guide now, somewhere between two and three cents. Um, but you know what I mean? So that was my collecting, which wasn't really collecting, because I just I didn't have the money. I just didn't have the money for it. And, it. and I was certainly more interested in reading every week what money I had, spending it to buy new books and things that were coming out than necessarily going back. And again, was it, it wasn't much collecting, but I treasured what I had and I kept it all and I organized it and I would buy the, you know, the Overstreet guides and I would add up the value of my very precious collection of garbage. You know what I mean? Not realizing it was garbage, but you know, there were and some okay books occasionally, accidentally. You know, there's, there's you read, also, you read, uh, you read Spider-Man long enough. No, I was just gonna say you end up with a Spidey 300. You know what I mean? You end up with the books that accidentally are worth value. But yeah, no, it was not a great collection. But it was my collection. You know? And one, one of the first things that I learned about collecting is that you know the the prices that are listed in the in the price guide aren't oh, sure. necessarily what you're gonna get if you decide you want right. to sell this book. But at the anyway. time. That's that was all I had to go on. I mean, sure. I really, in some ways, I was not particularly savvy about any of it. Didn't really know any other collectors. I had friends that started reading comics because I read comics or they liked comics too, and we sort of did it together. But we were not advanced. And even though we were in New York City, it was years till I sort of, I don't know, kind of had the wherewithal to go to a show or things like that. It just, I don't know. I, it was a very, I don't know. It was strange. I, you know, I, I and again, it was like for years I shopped at a store, uh, called, uh, big apple comics on 92nd and Broadway, which was across from where my grandmother lived. And the guy that owned the store, uh, was a big comic art dealer, a guy named Pete Koch. And there was loads of comic art, like, in the back room, but I never went in the back room because I didn't know anybody and I didn't know people. You know what I mean? It was like mm. one of those things. So I was just doing my thing, which was fine. Cause I was honestly, I was reading the books. I was spending 
good money every week and buying, you know, a couple of inches. I was never a only a Marvel or only a DC guy. I read Marvel and DC and then a bunch of the independents. And so I was I was an active reader. And that's really how I spent my money. I, guess. I think that's yeah. how most of us at least started. Uh, you know, I, I always had more respect for the people who collected and had a great collection with a lot of value. Who but did it because they love the books sure. as opposed to speculating that oh I can make money on right. this. So when did when did you make the trans? Well, well, actually, before I ask you that, uh, yeah. do you still maintain a collection of comics at this point? Uh, I have my books that I buy every. You know, I still buy shop. I buy at the the store every week, uh, and I have those books. And periodically, I have a buddy that owns a shop now, and periodically. I have him go through them and kind of just go, yeah, maybe hold on to these and the rest are, you know, sort of chuffa and either sell them back to him or donate them to a hospital or just right, send them right. send them overseas. I, I just the, the 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 years ago I had I had kept a new I lived here in L.A. from 95 on and I had kept my storage unit in New York for years and years and years and years and I had paid thousands upon thousands of dollars to store all my long boxes and i finally paid even more money I, cl I shut down the storage unit i shipped everything out here to la and i went through it with him and there was some accidental stuff you know there was probably like 40 or 50 long boxes of comics and of those 40 or 50 long boxes of comics he kind of put together six or seven long boxes of comics and kind of gave me money for that and but, but it didn't even cover the storage unit fees. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and at that point, it was just like, what am I doing? I, I love the reading, but it is what it is. So yeah, well, I, I would think now, if you know, with that being your yeah. uh, situation, I would think the the digital platforms might be the best way for you. I, they are, although I do like the concrete. I like the touching. I like the turn the pay the turn of the page. So I still buy. And like I said, I eventually let them go in different ways. And I, again, I like the reading. I mean, I'm still a, an avid reader. And so that's a big part of it for me. The collecting days. This year, for the first time, or I guess in the last calendar year, I actually bought, quote unquote, some old books for the first time in forever. And I bought a couple of books out of the quote-unquote Steve Ditko pedigree collection, the stuff that had been owned by Ditko and given to his various nephews and relatives that they then sold off in the last year. And they are, what's the word? They are CG, CGC'd, or is that what they're, yeah. but with the Ditko like, like label on it. And I just wanted to have something that Steve Ditko owned, but that's pretty cool. That's that's the extent of my comic collecting, I guess, these days. Every now and then I talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a, you know, a, and again, I don't even know if it would have to be, uh, what's the word, you know, uh, uh, sealed and graded. But I always talk about like, wouldn't it be great to have like a, like a cherry perfect version of like a book that I have like the art to or the cover to in my art collection. Yes. And I think about it and I always go like a little down the line of like, well, how much would it cost? And then at some point I always go, I'd rather buy art with the money or something like that. And it is what it is. So like I said, I have the Ditko books. I have a couple of the, the early star Wars books. Cause I have a set that were signed by George Lucas. Nice. And that's kind of cool. But 
you know, my my quote unquote comic collection would fit like in a half box at this point these days. It's okay. not much of anything. Uh, yeah, but it's fun. That's things okay, I though. personally treasure. Yeah, things I personally treasure. Yeah. But now at some point you made the conversion from comic books, which you still read, obviously, but to the art. Yeah, when I. When I first moved out to Los Angeles and was able to, but I guess the two things were I went to San Diego for the first time, which was eye-opening. And also at the, that time I was working, I was a Seinfeld writer and I, you know, there's no other easier way of saying it. I sort of had disposable income, for lack of a better word, for the first time in my life. And I went down to my first San Diego comic convention and I basically saw comic art really for the first time to some extent. And I was just... It was a weird combination of I was just so taken aback by it as a little bit of a frustrated artist. Like I was never I always wanted to draw but couldn't. And the one of a kind nature and the this was part of the process. I was really just taken with it. And at that point, even though I'm sure if we went back and looked in 1995, what the key book prices were compared to what they are now in my mindset, even though I had some disposable income, it just seemed like the the comic art world, I'm sorry, the comic book world had, had had sailed past me. Why would you ever spend a thousand dollars on giant size X Men one? Of course, seems like a bargain now. You know what I mean? Or you know, why would you spend ten thousand dollars on AF fifteen? So I just art just seemed not only really really cool to me and spoke to me, but also in a weird way, seemed like a bargain, like seemed like it was I, I was getting in early enough that I could actually buy the things I want without feeling guilty about it. So I don't know, some combination answer, but that, that was sort of the how and the why. Yeah. Yeah, the, the artwork, I would say my story is similar to what we talked about with the pricing kind of just just always eluding me because yeah. I was never going to. That's by the way, that's how I felt about books. Like, again, I could have done it because, again, I was working. I was a single guy living in a rental apartment, driving a leased car, you know, working at a place that basically gave me three meals a day. So my my my, you know, and again, it was a and it was a beginning Hollywood job, but it was also a Hollywood job. So could I have bought a comic book like a high end book? Absolutely. But it seemed incorrect <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no i definitely get what you're saying yeah. for, for me the artwork i've because i knew i was never going to fall down the rabbit hole of having a collection of artwork I, it's just not at this point in my life i couldn't just start that but i kept saying well what i'd like to do is get one page that's done by an artist that's you know would be on my list of sure people yep. you know yep. and with characters that i recognize and it was kind of like, you know, okay, when that would cost $150, I was willing to pay about 100 for it. When when I was thinking, okay, I could spend $500 for that, it would cost about 1000 sure. <laughs> you know, and it's just always eluded me. And, and I have a couple of commissions that I've gotten over the years. I've got a, you know, commission from Rich Buckler. I have a commission from, I have uh, a really nice commission from uh, Val uh, Mayrick. Uh -huh. uh, I have... Billy Tucci, I've gotten a couple of things from. Uh, Billy lives out here on Long Island, so I, I okay. actually have see him at different kind of events fairly frequently. So he was an easy one to kind of get a few things from. Uh, but you know, the the actual art page 
for right. a book that I would love to have. That That's something that's eluded me. Uh, and who knows? Maybe I'll eventually get it. Maybe I won't. My wife is very tolerant of my sure. uh, of, of my hobby because usually my hobby isn't costing us a lot of money. It's a lot more of what I'm doing right now with you talking about it than it is putting out the cash. Right. Uh, what really what really did appeal to me in a different way was that notion of whatever. Pick, you know, again, we, we've been talking about giant size one. You know, even if I have a whatever a nine point six or a nine point eight uh, giant size one, and again, I don't know how much you get into the grading and whatnot, but again, I, I'm just talking to someone who's aware of it. I don't really do much of it. Um, I guess what I was going to say is even these these quote unquote best copies. There were X number of them. You know, there there were, you know, there's more than one. You know, once in a while you see like, oh, there's only one graded this higher or whatever. But for the most part, there's at least another one on whatever the book is. There's sure. an, you know, there there is another one. And yet, when I found early on an actual original page of art from Giant Size 1 with Nightcrawler getting, you know, chased by the, the villagers, and it was one of those pages... That is one of one. And while someone else may have the page in front of it or the page behind it, because it's a three-page sequence introducing him, my page is just me. And there was something really appealing to the collector gene in me. It kind of awoken something, along again with the process aspect of it, that like I loved seeing it and the whiteout and the notes to each other and sometimes script notes and script changes. And I don't know if that was the writer in me, the creative sort of force on the page, which is different than reading a finished book, which is obviously wonderful unto itself. And so all of those things, but again, especially the collector's ego of a true one of one, I guess, is some of what spoke to me. So, oh, I definitely yeah. think that is yeah. a very cool aspect of it, especially something like that where you could, you tell me the page and I can picture it in my mind right away. Yeah. You know. And for me, just to take it one step further, my comic art collection is my, it is a collection of comic art of books and things that I love. And some of them are important, but some of them are not important. They're important to me. Now, luckily, because I'm, you know, a kid of the, you know, mid 80s, some of the books that I love that I have collected art on have gone crazy and I guess have turned into a fine investment. But it's not why I bought it. And in some ways, it's the worst thing that ever happened because I can't buy more of it. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I know exactly yeah, what you mean. Yeah. So that that's uh, that was, and again, the yeah. actual resale value is of less import to me than more the sentimental value, the significance of it. So how 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 wide ranging is your original art collection? How how large is it? Oh, it's crazy large. It's ridiculously large. I mean, I don't. It's like huge. I don't know what else to say. Okay. Thousands of pieces. Thousands of pieces. Okay. Yes. That's incredibly impressive. Uh, but uh, what would you say? And again, I don't care about financial yeah. value. To you personally, what is the most valuable piece? Well, I mean, again, that's where it does get sort of, you know, again, it's like there are a couple of different ones. Um, you know, uh, like one of my absolute all-time favorite books uh, forever and ever and ever was, uh, what is it, X-Men Annual, uh, is it five? I, I'm, I'm so bad five, with the numbers. Five was where they days. fought the brood. Not the brood, oh, the, the, uh, the, the badoon. Uh, 
That's uh, the Bajuda. Then is it six? Six was Dracula, I believe. Oh, then is it four? Okay, maybe I'm... No, wait. Okay. Is four... I think you're... I'll look it up on my now CGC I, app. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking too. It's four. It's four is the one I'm thinking of. I love five too, but a buddy of mine loves five also and owns that cover. But four is the one where Nightcrawler dies and they go to hell to save his soul. Yes, um, starring Doctor Strange. Yes, and that is a comic that I read as a child when I was in third grade. I had my appendix out in Mount Sinai Hospital, and that book was brought to me in the hospital to cheer me up during the week's stay because it was pre-laparoscopic surgery. They actually cut you open and you had to right. recover for a week. And I read that book, and I have never forgotten that book and being in the hospital and all those things. And I love that book. And I have a crap load of pages from it, but I have the cover to that issue by John Romita Jr. It's an early piece by him. And I'd have paid anything in the world to get it, but it didn't cost anything in the world. But I love that. I just love it. And it is pure nostalgia. There's no other way. It's like an adrenaline shot of nostalgia right to the heart. Um, it, it, I... I love it. I love that story. I know that story backwards and forwards. I can I can sense memory, my hospital room and reading it there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what that book does for me. And so owning that art is just wild to me because of how important that book was. So that's an example of something that I that I treasure that someone else might not. Now, things that I treasure that other people might treasure as well i have I, we were talking about giant size one i was lucky enough to become friends over the years with len ween mm. and many years back he sold me the cover to giant size oh, one wow. so that's in my collection and as the guy that i didn't buy a copy of that book basically my at my first san diego I actually bought my first copy of Giant Size 1. I'd read it in reprints a thousand times, but it was only when I finally had my Seinfeld money. And I'm not talking about a mint copy. I just finally bought a a nice copy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Which absolutely. still cost me way too much money. But that, for me, that white whale of a book, to not only get the, the original art to it and all of that, but also as you know, a huge fanboy... Getting to know Len and meeting him here in L.A. at Brent's Deli and uh, getting to play poker with him and Marv Wolfman and Jerry Bingham and Steve Mitchell. I got to go to these great poker games and play with these guys. That's as good as the cover. And it's all tied in to the cover, although that piece of art is effing incredible. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. So those are the two. Those are two sides to my collecting, I guess. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, I, I, two things that occurred to me while you were talking about that is nothing says get well soon to a young kid in the hospital like a comic book about somebody going to hell. Yes, uh, <laughs> but it worked though. It worked. Yeah, I, I have the same a similar uh, experience that I was in a car accident as a kid and I was in the hospital okay. for a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, bad. Uh, but one of the things that was brought to me while I was recovering in the hospital was Origins of Marvel Comics. And yep. I could not have read that more times uh, than I did in that span. When I when I was a kid, the books, I had the Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man Dick goes in the paperbacks, the little box oh, set yeah, of yeah. paperbacks. 
comics. So that's how I read Spider-Man comics for the first time. I had Origins and Son of Origins, and I had the Hulk one, the Fireside Hulk book, of which that's a Bob Larkin cover. That I've managed to add to my collection. I have the original Bob Larkin painting to the Hulk one. Mm -hmm. And then I had the DC ones. I had the Superman, Batman, and Shazam from the 30s to the 70s, those hardcovers. The Batman is the Carmine Infantino on the rooftop of Batman and Robin coming at you, which was used also as a poster and a lot of marketing art. I bought that years ago, and the Shazam one is a little bit of like stat, but also some art, and it's uh, Kurt Schaffenberger, and I own that art because those those collected books were so important to me. And I bid but lost out. I, some of the Origins books have come up, but I've lost out on those, but they're still really cool. So, again, the nostalgia, yeah, the collecting <laughs> of those – uh, and I, by the way, I'm enjoy- as a New Yorker, I'm laughing and enjoying all your various uh, Mets, Yankee. I, I don't know if there's any Yankees here, but I see the there's, Mets. There's no, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I see the Mets home run thing, and of course the Islanders thing. And as a as a child of the '70s, I just have been wanting to yell at you, Pot Van sucks for the entire time. But anyway, well, that's, that's, that's from for, you living in Manhattan gonna, oh, and me living gonna, in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's going to be only for a very small portion of your audience. That and beat your wife, Pot Van. Beat your wife. But anyway. Uh, when uh, sorry, I'll tell you a funny story, a sports story. Um, I was in New York City. Uh, I'm a huge Yankee fan. Uh, although I didn't hate the Mets, I liked the Mets and I appreciate them. But I love the Yankees. And when the Yankees won the World Series uh, in '96, why well, in '96, <laughs> riding back on the subway into Manhattan, everybody just you know unbelievably you know joyous coming back from being down to Atlanta, you know and two nothing and sweeping them in Atlanta and then winning in New York and the crowd they just jam packed on the new on the subway system and everybody just in such a good mood and and actually a pot van sucks chant broke out <laughs> on the subway after the Yankees World Series which I've always treasured as a great New York memory so there you go well, yeah for, for what it's <laughs> worth I, I have been to more Islander games at Madison Square Garden than I have at the Nassau Coliseum, even though I live in Long Island now, but I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, But I had a friend who had season tickets to the Rangers, and whenever the Islanders were there, he would say, why don't you come to this game? That's great. You heard your fair share. Yes, yes, I I, I saw more games in enemy territory than anywhere (laughs) else. Uh, But, uh, you know, you mentioned Superman from the uh, 30s to the 70s. Now, they eventually came up with Superman from the 30s to the 80s. I never touched it. I never never, touched it. Never touched it. Yeah, I'm Uh, sure it's fine. I never bought it, though. Yeah. I still have. If you were to go, uh, they are these, like, oak bookshelves. They probably look exactly like your bookshelves. The oak bookshelves in my childhood bedroom in my parents' place on 70th and West End. There are two shelves still of comic-related stuff. There's, like, Bloom County and various things. There's a Watchmen trade, a Dark Knight Returns Mm. trade. And there are my original copies of those 30s to the 70s uh, books with their, you know, somewhat 
you know, cracked and ratty, uh, but the, the dust covers are still on them. And they're, they are, I look at them every time I go to my parents' house. I pull them down and thumb through them. Yeah, those, yeah. Those, those, just the yeah. memories, things like that bring back are great. But that's just, I felt like that was a, a nice bridge topic wise to when you talk about Superman from the 70s to the 30s, because that was where I was first introduced to the character Bizarro. Yeah, and for me, it's sort of actually very similar. That book in particular, I guess I would say it was a combination, but that book and then later on a lot of like the Digest, which was my big summer camp reading. Like that was how my every time I would get a care package from home, my mom would send me Digests, and the Digests were usually often I liked Richie Rich, I liked Little Archie. Uh, I loved Little Archie. And then uh, it was always usually a, like it was a DC Digest. And it was usually either a Superman themed one or like a Legion of Superheroes themed one. And the Superman ones would always have the Silver Age stuff in it. But the but going back to the 30s to the 70s, that's where I read all those great, you know, Superman Red, Superman Blue. But that's my first exposure to Bizarro that, you know, on some level... I am obsessed with, but also it sort of, you know, changed my life a little bit just because obviously I eventually wrote the Bizarro Jerry episode of Seinfeld, where if I may take a little credit, Bizarro pre the Bizarro Jerry had kind of gone away a little bit. Uh, if you look through, he hadn't appeared in a number of years. Mm -hmm. I think he had become... I don't know. I don't know if the creators just thought he was too stupid or what, or I don't know. He was a little bit out of favor, the way sometimes a bat villain kind of disappears. And I will take credit, even though I don't know if anyone wants to give it to me, for reigniting a little bit of love for Bizarro. And I think people started putting Bizarro back into books and certainly doing stuff with him. And I will take full credit. I, for I that. definitely yeah. think that episode brought it, brought the character into the consciousness of people who yeah. might not otherwise have known who he was. Regardless of it, what for, they were. If you didn't know who he was, you knew who he was. And if you knew, if you kind of remembered who he was, you went, Oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. If I, I think. Yeah. But now that, that episode, I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective until I found out otherwise, which is not that long ago. I always knew of Jerry Seinfeld as being a very big Superman fan. And he absolutely is and was, yes. So I just kind of always assumed he was the driving force behind that one until I listened to you on Gilbert's show, and you were saying how you came up with the idea, and you mentioned it to Jerry, and Jerry was like saying, run with it. Uh, no, Jerry, Jerry allowed it to go far further than any other human being on Earth, because obviously he was a Superman fan, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I was, it was a very sort of natural progression. It was, came out of the idea of, it was the Elaine boyfriend story of her dating this guy that wanted to be friends, you know, the old, let's just be friends. And it was about a guy who actually takes her up on that, even though for her, it was a brush off. He takes her up on it, becomes a good friend. And he is sort of Jerry's opposite. And then of course, Bizarro Jerry, and there you go. And then obviously we took it far further. Which yeah, well, was then, then you had to have yeah. the bizarro version of everybody. Yeah. You had uh, the guy across the hall. It was a Feldman from across yeah. the hall. And, Feldman, yeah. You know, Feldman from across the hall, yes. And we, we and again, and that, but, but going that far was because of Jerry. Like going to literally uh, Me So Happy, Me Want to Cry, <laughs> and the Seinfeld theme music playing backwards at the end was. 
That's that's Jerry just going, I love Superman. Go for so it. So now, how do you tie in, or was this somebody else's idea that you had the man hands thing in the same episode? That's just a separate pitch. I mean, the I mean, I, this sounds silly, but the way we would write a Seinfeld story is you're sort of trying to write, you're sort of pitching at the time. At the time, it was just Jerry, but originally it was Larry and Jerry, and then Larry left, and it was just Jerry. But the way you would write a show was each writer was responsible for their own episode. And our job initially was simply to pitch stories until you had four approved stories, one for each character. So you would go in and you would go, hey, I was thinking about this for George. And they might go, yes. And then you would go, I'm thinking about this for Jerry. And he'd go, they go, no. And I was thinking about this for Elaine. No. And this for Kramer. No. And you'd leave going, okay, I've got a George story. So then you'd work out some more stuff and you'd come back and go, okay, you already approved this George story. Here's this, this, this. And they might go, oh, now we're going to approve this. and that. you know. So that was the process. So Manhands ended up in it just simply as a separate other thing from my life that I pitched that they liked and approved. But in the early days, you are pitching them separately as four separate storylines. And then the goal is figuring out how they begin to bounce into each other. And so the bouncing into each other is sort of, that's the hard part, but that's later on. So that's how those ended up in there, I guess. I mean, not to, not to blow smoke but uh that is such a classic episode on all fronts i mean really i appreciate that that. i could tell you that was uh literally you know the 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 pitch was must see tv it literally was at the time for me and i was setting my vcr to record it every time and that particular episode i remember parts of it just making me laugh so hard that i had to rewind and watch over again so my hat's off to you on that one. No, I, you know, it's one of those things where uh, it's it's been a very very long time, and yet I am uh, quite proud of it. And uh, I, I honestly, you know, I pound for pound, it stacks up really well against uh, about anything. So I I, I will take the praise. Uh, thank you. I would I would be uh, interested in seeing, and I've never seen, uh, but if I, I'm sure there is somewhere out there where they list the Seinfeld episodes. In order, like this is the best one down to the worst. And obviously that's subjective, but I could pretty much guarantee that's in the top 10 on just about everybody's Everyone's list. Everyone's list is different. I, it, when I have looked at those things, it usually makes a top 10 appearance. And I, again, I'm always honored by that because obviously everyone's is very different. You know, at the time, um, Larry had left and it was really a, it was cool to sort of like show people the show was still good i it was fun you know i don't know what else to say so yeah yeah well when i look uh on your uh wikipedia page and they list specifically steinfeld writing episodes and there's about 10 episodes there i would say uh now i I have no idea but but, yes but (laughs) looking over that episode a lot of them you know there's so many classic episodes in the show that i can't sit here and and fairly say oh these are the ones but every one of them very memorable to me. So well, I, again, I thank you. But only but only that one is about Bizarro Superman. So yeah. There you so go. Yeah. and and, and <laughs> for for anybody listening to us today, you know, when I reached out to David and I asked him if he uh, had interest of coming on, I wasn't sure exactly how to go about this. So I said, oh, maybe we want to go with what for us is a traditional episode where we pull out a comic book and we read it we give a synopsis of it and then we just talk about it i i my first thought was oh you know do you want to do a bizarro episode uh and the response i got was well i'm not really a bizarro expert uh no i mean look i can sit here and i can tell you like i mean obviously 
I have read, I know, I know his origin. I'm a huge fan. And again, this is where my numbers and stuff. So we'll talk a little comics that, uh, that storyline where the bizarros invade earth because on the bizarro planet, bizarro and bizarro Lois have a baby and it's human looking. So they send it away and it goes to earth. And then there's like the whole invasion thing. I mean, I love those, you know, it's like a three part or something. Mm -hmm. I love that. That is that is Bizarro and Superman at its best. And at the end of the story where the kid turns into Bizarro and then looks ugly and they happily take the kid back. Uh, you know, again, going back to that, I, I think that is in the uh, 30s to the 70s book because I think that's where I read it the first time. I love that story. And if it's not in there, it's obviously I read it in the digest, but I think it's in there. And so... Give me that story, and I can talk about that story. Uh, I love the covers. I love the way the story works, the sort of the similarities of them sort of, I think if our memory serves, they rocket their kid away the way almost like baby Kal-El was sent to, sent to Earth. They send ugly baby Bizarro to Earth and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, to me, the writers are having a lot of fun with it. I love the way this, those stories look. I love everything about it. Um I'm a huge fan of a lot of the those tales from the Bizarro like backup stories, you know, that like uh, like Plastino did. I like that stuff, too. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I can sit here and tell you the issue number and things of that nature. So that's I just wanted to prepare you for where my you know, it's like I'm a fan, but I may not live up to what your previous guests have. No, well, it's like, I just wanted to prepare your audience and yeah. just for, for what it's worth. If I yeah. ever am lucky enough or or persistent enough to convince you to come back maybe we'll actually do that but in the meanwhile you know my, my first response to david's thing was i don't look for expertise i look for passion and i know you have that uh and secondly was well let's just talk about gen general stuff which yeah. is what we're doing today and i like i said if, if we ever uh I'm, I'm gonna leave it to you if you ever want to come back and do that i would love to have you back and do it but i'm not gonna put pressure on you to do it and if you're not up for it uh, so let's, let's, I just want to talk a little bit more about what yeah. you've done just because I am impressed by a lot of it. But if Larry was not there when you were on Seinfeld, well, he was, was there at first. Oh, he year was. One okay. Was, Cause year I was, gonna... one was year one was season six, which was Susan dies. George gets engaged and Susan dies from the poison envelopes. And that's, that's, and then Larry says goodbye at the end of that season. And then we did. A couple of more seasons we did. No, that season. Sorry, I'm getting that wrong. But that season seven, and then we did two seasons without him, eight and nine, with which where Jerry, who had been running it with Larry, took full control. So right. that that's kind of I was there for the final three years, basically. Yeah. Okay, and then how did you end up on or working on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which you're listed as a director, a writer, and a producer? Um. Curb was kind of a combination of events. On the one hand, you know, I uh, had remained, even after he left, had remained close with Larry, uh, you know, played poker together, another poker story, just different odds and ends like that. You know, we sometimes we would, I remember early on when he was first creating Curb, once in a blue moon, we'd have lunch with him and he'd just run stuff by us. You know, I used to work with two other guys, uh, Alec Berg and Jeff Schaefer. And, you know, we would just hear stuff. And honestly, it was most of the time it was just us going, oh, that's great, because it was great. There wasn't anything to add. So we were always in contact with him. But the real answer is we needed an office. That's the honest answer. In 2003 into four, 
we uh, wrote and directed a, a movie, a teen comedy called Eurotrip, uh, which has a lot of nudity in it. And when the movie came out, uh, while it has become a little bit of a cult hit these days, if you're the right age, uh, it was it opened at like third place behind like an Adam Sandler movie and Welcome to Mooseport. And very quickly, our sort of uh, burgeoning kind of writing, directing of movie career was kind of kind of cold very quickly. Um, and we had been working out of an office at uh, like Universal DreamWorks, which is where we had done the movie, and they were kicking us out. And we kind of just needed an office. And Larry was good enough to come to the premiere of Eurotrip because at some point or another, uh, DreamWorks had threatened us that they weren't going to throw us a premiere if we didn't invite some celebrities that we knew. And so out of the kindness of their hearts, um, Larry came, uh, Kevin Smith, Jason Muse came, and uh, Jason at the time was hanging out with Jack Osborne from the Osbournes. So they all came and we got our premiere. Um, and we were t- I remember talking with Larry, and I don't know, somewhere in there we were talking about getting kicked out of our offices and Larry was like, I've got some extra office space. Would you guys mind if I ran some stuff by you? And that was the initial idea was just simply we would use his extra office space and that every now and then he'd come and knock on the door and, you know, throw some stuff by us. And we were just like, Oh God, thank God office space. And the idea was we'll keep working on movie stuff. And we wrote probably, probably like another two movies in that office wait while we were helping Larry and it started off very casual where we were just sort of on the season where Larry uh Richard Richard Lewis needs a kidney and Larry finds out he's adopted we were kind of kibitzing and helping Larry with those outlines and story and I don't even know if we had a credit I can't remember honestly maybe we were consultants or something honestly it's too long ago to me remember even our credit and then the following year um the guy that had been helping him, which was another Seinfeld guy at the time, uh, Larry Charles, went off to go do Borat, uh, to direct Borat. And so Larry was like, hey, would you guys be interested in taking a more active role because Larry Charles is leaving? And because we had been like helping on the, the stories and then leaving for production, he would go off and do the show. And it was like, would you want to be a part of production? We were like, could we direct it too? And he was like, yeah, sure. And it just kind of happened. So it was just, it was, all, it was all a, it was all a real estate deal. It was all a, a land grab. We, we were, we were too cheap to pay for offices, and we ended up uh, writing and directing and exec producing Curb and Larry, which was just uh, obviously as good as you think it is. Uh, it, it is. It was. So you, you were like Lex Luthor in the first Superman movie. <laughs> exactly real estate yeah but uh yeah now there's a couple of things about curb that i find fascinating and the first is is that it's highly improv uh and i yep. heard you talking about that with uh with gilbert and about uh, you know you you come you kind of come up with the keys this is what's going to happen in this scene and you might have a couple of jokes that you put in but otherwise it's like do it, you know, however it's, you're comfortable doing it because you're working with people talented enough to do that. You're bringing in people that are, you know, really good improvers and you're kind of, but it, it is very much, we all have our ideas of what the scene should be. And then you kind of let this, you've got to get a first take or a second take under your belt. And then 
it almost becomes like a live rewrite where everyone's throwing in their stuff and you're adding things and moving stuff around and trying to get it right. But it's all within a system where the outline of the show itself, the, the start to the end, we know everything important that's going to happen. It's just how the scenes, the individual scenes, how they sort of unwind and play out. But often we know this piece of information, Larry must say he's going to that party or Larry must insult Susie about X or whatever it is. And then how he insults her and how she insults him back and where that goes, that's the fun of it. And obviously things come up and then you're like, well, where do we put that? And something gets introduced and then you add it later on that you weren't planning. And so it is improv, but it's in, improv within this ironclad, really great outline. That's the important part. You, that's how you do it. Yeah. Do you have like a little freedom time-wise? Like if, you know, obviously if you're working with network TV, you're doing a 30-minute thing and you have to have the room for the commercials and everything. Like if, if you, the improv was, always, was so good that you went three minutes over. Are you there okay? Was always, there was always freedom. We always kind of tried to stick close to 30 minutes Lately, I've noticed they've gone a little longer because I'm guessing the improv is, you know, they've got too much good stuff. So, yeah, you know, it's HBO. They don't they're they're cool with it, you know, but I guess I am a believer. This is nothing about the current show. I always liked a half an hour for a comedy. You know, I didn't love 21 minutes. That's pretty brief and hard, you know, 21 minutes plus commercials. But I always liked. I like, you know, 30 minutes, you know, like when I did Veep. They would have let us go longer. We went longer. In my time period, we went longer on two episodes. We went long on the finale, which I thought was worth it. And we went a little long on the second to last episode. And if I could go back in time, I would take time out of that second to last episode. And I would get that down. To, it, it, when I watch it now, it's a touch long for my taste. And I wish I had taken the time out. Mm, so that's just me. That's just me. And I, yeah. I hate to repeat things I've, you know, yeah. that I've heard elsewhere, but I want to ask you, because I got such a big kick out of it when I was listening to it. If you could tell about how Larry would actually get mad at people during, <laughs> during filming oh. at least once a season or something. Well, it's always funny where like, you know, in these scenes, you know, people are yelling at him about different things. And of course it's not scripted. And so um, the, the one that was always very sort of funny to us, very early on was uh, Ken Yo- uh, Ken Jong before he was known as you know Ken Jong when this was like the, maybe the first time any of us had ever seen him, and he played a guy that got like in an argument with Larry like on the street over a piece of dry cleaning I think that Larry thought he stole. It's the one where he takes the the jersey to his dry cleaner and the jersey goes missing and it's a whole to do, and he was insulting him and when Ken was yelling at Larry. He, I can't even remember, he called him like a Tom Turkey motherfucker and like basically said he looked like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, but he kind of drifted into like age, like old man kind of stuff. And Larry did not like it and got angry at him in the scene, but Ken just thought it was the improv. And so he just thought Larry yelling at him was, you know, and it and it, this happens usually when I was around, it was like once or twice a season where it would be funny. The actor thinks Larry's like doing a really good job being angry. And it was like, no, 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 Larry's angry. Yeah. I, I, kind of ever stuff. since I heard you tell that story, I keep meaning to go back and rewatch that particular episode. Cause I, I, I just want to see his reaction. I have close up. no memory of what we actually used or didn't use. Like in terms of what Ken's, 
says in the editing, but that's that's what happened. So I don't know what made the final cut anymore. I've lost I've lost my memory of that. But again, it definitely that's what happened. It was, it was very. It was, it was one of the things I, I heard not only in your talk with Gilbert, yeah. but when when he, whenever he discussed Larry with anybody. It was always like, oh, yeah, Larry hated this guy. Larry hated that guy. Larry was angry at <laughs> this guy. Larry thought this guy wasn't smart enough to understand his <laughs> jokes. And and I just find it to be so amusing that, you know, he's such a beloved guy now. And he's got such an angriness underneath that facade, uh, which is just, you know, I, I I get the feeling that if I ever met him, which I doubt I ever will, but I, that I think I would get a kick out of him. Just for that. I, 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 look, I, I, I believe you would. I also think, uh, and I don't think this is saying anything too radical, um, he is very New York and all that that implies. And I think New Yorkers have an affinity for him and what bothers him and how he expresses it. Like, because... There's a there's a New York element to him. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I I, th- I definitely feel it. When I was in my postgraduate work, and I was at school, and I was I had taken a couple of years off in between undergrad and postgrad, and uh, I I've kind of felt like oh well, I'm I'm beyond these guys now. I'm four years older than them. The hell with them all. And I had this real chip on my shoulder. And the more insulting I would get to them, the more they loved me. Sure. So I think that's kind of like the Larry David way of life. <laughs> and that's, or at least that's well, how you I know, see again, it. It's like you as an actor, you come in to do the show and obviously you're thrilled to do it and finally do it or whatever. And if you're an improv person, you're, you know, you're thrilled. And like in, to some extent, oh, my God, I got not only did I get to do a scene with Larry, but I got to do a scene where he got mad at me and yell. And, <laughs> I would love you know, that. And I, got to, <laughs> right, and I got to yell back. And, if, you know, so, you know, and they're trying to be funny and be as funny as they can be. Which is great, just not the age thing. You know what I mean? And that's that's what's funny. And then it's like, oh, he's so angry. Boy, this is so fun. And it's like, no, stop. Yeah. Anyway. Now I've seen I've seen on Seinfeld and on Curb a lot of times the writers, the director, the different people manage to to find their way in front of the camera every now and again. Did did that ever happen with you? Because I don't recall seeing you. In Seinfeld, I am an extra, like a non-speaking extra a couple of times. I am a farmer holding a pig in the episode where Elaine is blackballed for peeking at her doctor's chart and ends up like in the middle of nowhere at a doctor's office. And I'm a farmer with a pig and she's there to see the doctor. And I'm like just sitting there in the in the waiting room. Uh, I was also in the insane asylum when George went to the insane asylum for... Uh, wearing the King George costume oh, yes, uh, yes. in that episode. Uh, and in the Summer of George episode, I am Frolf player number one that invi- invites George to play Frolf in the park. I have a speaking line there. So uh, I did get to do that. Uh, I think I also... Uh, I think I yell from the crowd a couple of times in uh, Seinfeld, and I'm definitely... I think I'm the racist father, maybe in the limo episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where there's an old, a crazy old uh, racist guy yelling from upstairs when Larry brings the limo back. And I think I yell, I'm a, I'm a voice a couple of times, but never in front of the camera on Curb. But uh, yeah, but just for fun, yeah. no real desire. Well, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's clearly yeah. you know when when you see 
when when you actually see somebody and you recognize that that's the situation, I, I've said many many times that I get more of a kick out of watching people perform, whether it's comic book artists, whether it's musicians, whether it's actors, singers, whatever. But I enjoy it more when it feels like the people who I'm watching do their craft are enjoying what they're doing. And when I see directors and writers and stuff in front of the camera, it says to me, you guys are just having a ball back there and, and just, you know, really well, trying to, very, very to make, much a, so. make it into a great time. That being said, I am not an actor, so I, I, I want to stress that. So there are many parts and many actors that could do a much better job than me. Uh, what I have played, such as Frolf Player One, was fine and was fine and okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, what's anybody going to bring to the guy sitting with the pig that you didn't bring to it? Well, I also didn't speak, and I just sat. <laughs> exactly. So what's good. anybody else going to bring to that? You might as well get in front of the camera and enjoy it. I mean, clearly. Larry enjoyed doing that with the Steinbrenner yes. or, or I don't know how many times I saw him in front of the camera when he's the guy with the cape on and when he's doing right. all these different yes. things. Uh, and then, you know, just hear his voice yelling out different things. Uh, you know, it's very recognizable once you're aware it's happening. Yes. I rem when I was a fan, it never occurred to me. And then, of course, when I work there, I, it's like, oh, my God, like I hear his voice in every, you know, it's like that kind of a thing. But, yeah. Which is really cool. So as I said to you earlier, and I don't know if that was before we started to record or not, but I have, for whatever reason, Veep has escaped me. So now I'm going to make a point of sitting down oh. and watching those episodes. And, uh, I mean, if nothing else, the, the pedigree between you and uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is certainly uh, enough to attract me to it uh, and, and make me want to watch it. But I did see that you have something new in the works, and I didn't want to keep you on too long because nope, I didn't want to keep great. it too All long. Good. And I also am, a, you know, as we talked about, I'm old and it's late here. Uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you about this new thing you have, the White House Plumbers, that's coming up in 2023. Yeah, it'll be uh, March 2023. It's kind of a, I guess, it, I mean, I shouldn't say it's kind of, it's a Watergate story, but it's sort of told from the perspective of the guys that actually broke into Watergate, which is sort of a perspective. We've been in the Oval Office before. We've been with Woodward and Bernstein. And you always hear about the burglars, the Watergate break-in. This is really about these guys who were selected to do the break-in, that pitched the idea of the break-in, and what their involvement did to their lives. Uh, and they called themselves the plumbers uh, because initially it was sort of they were put together – to stop some of the the leaks at the White House, among other things, and they fixed leaks, so they were the plumbers. Um, and uh, it, it's coming, like I said, it's coming in March with uh, Woody Harrelson as E. Howard Hunt and uh, Justin Thoreau as G. Gordon Liddy. And uh, I, uh, I directed it's five five episode main series that I directed and exec produced, and I, I'm I'm very excited about it. It's what I've been basically doing since honestly before covid honestly wow. I've been working on it at this point. well because we were supposed to do it then we shut down then we finally made it on the back end and then it's just everything's been slow so here we all here we all are in 20 soon to be 2023 yeah, yeah. I, I have a good friend who uh is a director producer on uh manifest and I've uh -huh. talked to him over the you know last few years about like once they started up again after COVID and the COVID protocols and how how difficult it was to to manage certain scenes, especially in the beginning when you were first allowed to get 
people into the same room and, you know, so many different logistical things that I'm sure made it more difficult to put those things together. It, it took a lot of the fun out of shooting because it, we were very, even within our little worlds, they had us all like not sitting together. So a, a, a film shoot or a TV shoot, whatever you want to call it, is always very communal and very fun. And the fun of it is sort of everybody gathered around the monitor, kind of, you know, chit-chatting in between and during. And that all went out the window. It was a very, uh, COVID was a very, iso- working during COVID, as I'm sure it was for lots of fields, uh, very isolating experience, very difficult. And I guess the one, the one good thing was because of the COVID protocols, um, I think we shut down uh, once for COVID, but for the most part, you know, I was tested five days a week and we caught it many times, but we always caught it before it turned into something really terrible. And that, I guess, was the good news. But it was not it just what can I tell you? It just shooting during COVID was not fun. Uh, I leave it at that. Did you you direct all five episodes? I did. I did. And I assume based on the subject matter, that this isn't something where it's going to have a, a season two of any sort. No. Uh, spoiler alert, Nixon goes to uh, Nixon get, leaves office and everybody goes to jail. So, yeah, uh, except Nixon. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, no, no real season two. I guess one could argue perhaps that season two is the Trump administration. But anyway, uh, but I'm fine. So, yeah. so do, you, do you have anything in the works for, for once that's done? No, honestly, I'm as we speak. I am. St- I'm. We're desperately going right up to Christmas, trying to get it done, and then we'll pick up again in the new year, trying to get it finished by the end of January for the March airing. And until it is out of my hands, I can barely put a sentence together, as your audience can now tell. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I again, because because I have a friend who does this, I, I kind of have an idea of how intense it can be at times. And again, I really appreciate you making some time to sit no, down my, and talk to pleasure. me. This is this has been my absolute pleasure to, to get a chance to, to talk to you. And uh, I would love to get get you on again, as I said, but I'm not yeah, I'm, I'm not going to pester you about it. It's kind of no, no, we'll do it again someday. We'll do we'll figure it out. I'll find an issue to to obsess upon, but uh, we'll we'll do something. Yeah. Okay. But well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This this has been great. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to throw out to to the audience before. Uh, we just wrap up. if people are interested in collecting, it's about movie prop collecting. But our podcast, uh, I do it with Ryan Condal, who's the uh, showrunner of House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones uh, prequel. It's a show called uh, The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. It's on all of the podcast networks. The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. It's about movie prop collecting, but we talk about the collector's mindset a lot of what it's like to get something, lose something, sell your collection. We talk a lot about big picture collecting ideas and also movie props. So please check that out. And if you're into comic art, uh, I post on social media. uh, I'm at David H. Mandel on most social media. And I post uh, every Monday, I post a piece of comic art from my collection that I call I, I call hashtag Comic Art Mondays, very original name, but I put one up every Monday, and you can check out some cool comic art from my collection if you're interested. So yeah, you yeah. know the uh, the stuff dreams are made of. It's it's interesting, and then before you know, I was ready to sign off, but I just since you brought it up, no, I, no, no. I, I'm going to talk about that because I found that interesting when I started listening to it. Now I have a curio cabinet up upstairs yep. among the main stuff. My wife lets me have that. That's 
you know that's that's you know in in the proper area now right now we're down in the basement this is my home office i'm in now and then we have oh i just assumed we were in the basement that that was a good yeah one. and i and i kind of have free reign in the basement to have things but i do yep. have my curio cabinet now one of the things i have in my curio cabinet is a replica of the maltese falcon uh you know bird blackbird and uh and i know that's been a conversation of late and uh you know that's 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 one of the things where like obviously if you could own one of them it's something you could put on display you know especially the original uh and it would be amazing i I have my i have my replica that i've had since i was a kid that i've had it was in my bedroom in new york city and now it's here in in los angeles i have my replica i don't even think it's a great replica but i have mine um that being said, the last our last episode, which had uh, Adam Savage on from Tested and Mythbusters, was about the history of the prop, how many they made, what we know of is out there, and obviously the chance when the real ones have shown themselves and what they're all about, which are pretty incredible. And I would definitely, you know, in the, it's, it's it's you know it's like the comic collect you know question like if you could only pick one comic well if I could only pick one prop the Maltese Falcon would definitely be up there I'll simply say yeah and that. that's that's where it becomes really interesting or at least you know I, and I and I, I think you guys I'm trying to remember because I've listened to a few of the episodes and I think you kind of broached the subject of like you know what would be your item that you'd want to have if you could have mm-hmm. any one thing and it, it's like. There's so many things that are props that, you know, you think, oh, that's pretty cool. But if I take this and I put it in my curio cabinet and somebody sees it, they're going to say, well, what's that? You know what I mean? Like there's so there's there's not quite as many that are so easily recognizable that anybody's going to see it and know exactly what it is. So most of my cabinet is filled with different, you know, I have the uh, sideshow James Bond figures and things of that nature that aren't, you know, they're not they're collectibles, but they're not of any real Sure. You know, serious value. I and and my my collecting, whether it was comic books, whether it was these type of things, has always kind of leaned towards. I want to get what I like, and I want to display what I like, and I'm not really worried about. Oh, this is more valuable. This is not more valuable. Yeah. And by the way, yes, I do think it's cool when you do have something where people recognize it. So, for example, like I have a Star Wars stormtrooper helmet, and That's obviously, awesome. it's pretty darn recognizable. That being said, I have, you know, a gun, a Bespin pistol from the Cloud City that most people can't recognize, but I still love it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and sure. so, you know, again, it's a little yeah, bit I, of I think uh, one of the questions that you, that you posed or that was posed to you was uh, with Clint Eastwood. Like, what would be the item you'd want to get? Yeah, we usually and I think every the, episode the common, try and pick a topic. Yeah, I think yeah. the common answer was the poncho from uh, one of the spaghetti westerns. Yeah. And I was thinking, I probably would love to have the, the forty four Magnum from Dirty Harry. But yeah, the things it's it's kind of interesting when you start looking at it from that perspective and start saying, well, what would be you know like your your you know right. what 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 would be on your Mount Everest of props you know? Uh, well, I think what's interesting is obviously look, everybody's seen movies. Not everyone has ever thought about, oh my gosh, the things in the movies are the props, and there are people that collect those things. And so for some people, the second you open their eyes to that this exists. I'm not saying they're going to become collectors, but they do start thinking about it differently in a very cool way. So, yeah. And then there's items which you couldn't pay me to bring home because uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the show. Uh, there's a, a podcast called Dearly Departed, uh, and, mm-hmm. and they, they talk about 
different you know each time they'll have a different topic a different movie or whatever and they'll talk about the actors in it and most of the times it's something old and all the actors have passed on dearly departed uh sure and and they'll be going through that stuff but they collect all these things and i think one of the items that one of the guys said he has is the sink that lucille ball used to like lean back on to have her hair dyed I was like, you, you you could tell me, come over and get that, and I'm going to say, no, thank you, I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm particularly interested in it unless I know someone that's looking for it that has something I want, and maybe there's a <laughs> trade to be had. Uh, but again, you know, to each their own, you know. Sure. It's like, again, it's I, I again, it's like everything else, you know. I have things in my comic art collection, I have things in my prop collection that I don't think anybody else wants, and I'm absolutely fine with that. Because let me tell you, the stuff that I have that other people want, I'm sick of those prices. So give me the thing nobody else wants but me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, well, I've, yeah. I've said, my, you know, my wife is very supportive on this. If I came home with the Lucille Ball sink, I think I might be looking for a new place to live. Yeah, if you kept in the basement, it'd be okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I... I I did want to discuss that uh, with you, though. I, I found that I, I, I am I have started to listen to the show and I'm enjoying it very much. Oh, and and I am I not a big that. prop collector, as I said, but, but I still I, but find you, the show but, to but, be fascinating. And again, you have a collector's mindset, so you understand the where we're it's like uh, what's the word? It's like if you know Latin, you can kind of pick out a lot of other languages. If you know collecting. Movie prop collecting is no different than comic collecting or comic art collecting or toy collecting. We're all collectors. Yes, and, so, and yeah. even when you're talking about something that is not necessarily something I'd want in my home or that I would go out of my way to have, it's still when you start talking about the movie and what significance it has, I find the show to be very interesting. Because, again, it's about, you know, where you and I started, we're talking about passions. And it's, I think, any hearing any collector being passionate about something is interesting to me. So sometimes we bring someone on and we say, what else do you collect? And they'll be like, oh, we also I also collect, you know, Japanese glass. And I'm like, I don't know anything about Japanese glass. I don't even know what you're talking about. And they'll be like, here's a picture. I'm like, that's cool. Like, what kind of stuff? Well, there's old stuff and pre-war. And you go, okay, great. You know, and you just kind of you kind of go with it. So yeah, uh, I, lo I love that, that part of it. Yeah, so, yeah. I have a friend who's a, an avid pen collector, and and mm -hmm. I found out that they actually have pen conventions and things, and yep. I'm like, wow, I had no clue. So it, it, there's there's avenues for all of us. Yes, thank gosh, thank gosh. Yeah. Okay, well, once again, David, I want to thank you for your time, and this this hey, has been a real great. pleasure. Uh, uh, real fun, and thank you for again being flexible with the time. So uh, well, I, 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 I know it's. it's pretty, I am yeah. fully understanding that if we do this again, I have to be willing to stay up late. So that's part of the bargain. Yeah, part that's, of bargain. that's yeah. and part of the bargain I'm willing willing to do. So thank you again, and I hope everybody's enjoyed listening. I I get the feeling that they will. Cool. Thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>